0: It's, it's, it's kind of fitting that we pray over them and sending them out because I'm going to read, we're going to read from Mark chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. This is where Jesus begins to call his disciples and sends out the apostles and he commissions them. And it's kind of what we, were in a sense, doing this morning. But um, as you know, our, our pastor is out this morning. He is in Galax, uh, West Virginia. No, Virginia, sorry. No, no not the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Not the not that mountain, right? <laughs> uh, but it's a joy that he gets to go there. Uh, as you know, several years ago, Dave and Beth White left Christ Chapel, um, and we commissioned them out. We prayed over them. We sent them. We gave them our hearts and resources, and we sent them out. And it is amazing to see what God has done in the years in their pl- in, uh, through them, isn't it? Amen. And I know several of you love them, guys, and it's great to see that. Um, but this morning, I want us to read a little bit, and I'm going to try to cover a lot in a little bit of time, so um, you're going to have to go home and read, too, to, to follow up on some of this. So um, let's just start in verse 13, 313. This is right after a great crowd had started following Jesus, and it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to those to whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And might send them out to preach. And to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon whom he gave the name Peter. James and the, of Zebedee and John the brother of James. To whom were given the names. I can't even try that. That is the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew. And Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus and Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And he went home, and the crowd gathered again, and so that they could could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out and seized him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Let's pause there. And let's pray over this morning. Amen. So, Heavenly Father, once again, I just come to you as a humble servant who you've called. And as my brother, I stand up here in my, my weakness, as I stand in my fragility in desperate need of your Holy Spirit this morning, in desperate need of you to be in this place and in the hearts and lives. My words are at best hollow, but your words are life. My words at best may encourage, but your words give life. Lord, so we lean upon you this morning, lean into your word, to your truths, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we may hear your voice and know you and hear your call. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there anything that you're really good at in life? Let's think about that. If you're a dude in here, you better have an answer, right? Is there something you're good at? I mean like almost flawless, right? For me, I, I like to think I have this internal compass that's just spot on, right? Anybody else? Any good navigators in here? Man, I I like to think that my compass is spot on. In fact, you know, I like to go out in the woods and I, I make it my effort to not take a compass, to not take all these things with me and just like use my internal compass and go. Now, how many of you have like maybe somebody else doesn't agree with you as much, right? You have a wife like mine who, she loves to give directions, He just wants to make sure I'm on the path. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Man, but I really feel like my internal compass is really good. And I remember in college, I tested it one time. I like really tested it. And I remember we went out with some buddies in college. You do some crazy things. And it was like six inches of snow on the ground. And so we're up in the mountains of North Carolina, camping out, backpacking and camping out. And, um, the guys I went with were just, they did not understand camping. This might have been their first time ever. One guy didn't even bring a sleeping bag. That's how much he was really into camping. And <laughs> so they were kind of fussing and fighting over like what the campsite should be. One guy took us off on a trail. It the wrong direction. So we ended up just like not getting anywhere. And I was kind of frustrated because I had, I wanted to go up to the top of this mountain. It was Standing Indian, like the highest, highest mountain in the Appalachian south of North Carolina or something like that. And so it was a really high mountain peak, and I wanted to get up there, and I wanted to sit and watch the sun go down. Because when you're in the mountains and you watch the sun go down, it's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? And so that was my goal that day. I wanted to. And these yahoos were just fussing and fighting, so I was like, fine. Y'all have your time. I'm going to the top of the mountain. So I head off to the top of the mountain, and I'm sitting up there, and I had packed a sandwich because I didn't want to cook that night because we were just going for one night and then heading back. And so I was like, let's keep it simple. So I bring a sandwich and I'm sitting on the top of this rock and just basking in the glory of of nature and how majestic God is in this creation and how small and finite I am. And the sun's going down and it hits me that I don't have a flashlight. You ever been in that moment? And so I'm like, well, I don't think I'm going to get back in time. This will be interesting. And so we're in bear country in North Carolina, as you know, and um, six inches of snow on the ground. And so I'm just like, you know what? We're going to do it. So I just take off running through the woods. I didn't get off the trail. I just go right through the woods. I'm like, our campsite's over that way. I'm just take off and go. And so a little bit after dark, I happened to come up on our campsite. I was like, man, it's pretty good. All right, made it here. I'm not spending the night out in the cold. And so that kind of reinforced this idea, right? Like, yeah, I got a good internal compass. And so... Later on in life, I remember going on a trip with some guys out in the John Day wilderness in Oregon. I don't know if you've ever been out in the Midwest, but when I say it is vast, it is vast. When I say it is desolate and wilderness, it is a desolate wilderness. And so we go out near this town, John Day. Used to be a logging community, thrived, and then when they canceled logging in Oregon, like 50 people left, maybe 30 people left in the town. I don't know. It was a, there were more firefighters in the town than there were people. Let's put it that way. And so we head out to this wilderness. We're going to go elk hunting, and I love to get out and go elk hunting. And so a a buddy of mine takes us up to this ridge, and he drops us off, and I'm with another guy. He has a GPS, and we're we're supposed to walk back to our campsite. Like, great, this is easy. It's just a couple ridges over. It'd be perfect. And so he pulls out his GPS. He marks a straight line and says, let's go. And I'm like, well, that's a good way to go, but we're in the wilderness. This is the high desert area, and I'm kind of measuring the terrain and to where he wants to go, what they call blowdowns. And so, what'll happen is the fire will run through this forest, it'll burn up all the trees, and they'll be standing there burnt. And then, all of a sudden, a strong wind will come through and knock every tree down. And so, you look for hundreds of acres, and it's just trees laying on top of each other. They'll lay there for 10, 20 years like that. And he's wanting to walk right through that. I'm like, what? I'm like, who wants to climb, that many tr- climb over that many trees? But two it's like if we're hunting an elk he's going to see us before we even get near him. And I'm looking and I'm like it looks like there's some vegetation over that way. So let's go that way. He's like no no we need to go straight line and, and get there. So we split, we part ways. I'm okay, I got this internal compass, right? So I head out and man I start finding these the spring that has come up and it's made this little creek that runs down the mountain and it's lush and there's like some bogs there and I'm like oh man Animals are going to need some water in this, this environment so they can survive. And so I start walking down along this creek, and lo and behold, I turn a corner, and there's, a, there's an elk. So I'm bow hunting, and I draw back my bow, and I, I shoot, and I get the elk, and it hits me like, that's a several thousand pound animal. i got to drag it out of the woods? Oh, man, this is not smart. <laughs> Should have planned better. So I'm like, all right, well, I remember where, I remember how I got to here. That'll be fine. We'll just come back around and drive around, and we'll pick up the elk and haul it back up the hill a little bit rather than over a couple of ridges. So I set off to go to the campsite. And I remember sorry, that direction, a couple ridges. We're good. So by noonday, I ran out of water. That's about the time we're supposed to be back. I had set out with just only two bottles of water in my backpack, and I had run through them by then. And the interesting thing you don't realize is when you're in a desert environment, somehow your body just... It sucks the water right out of you. And so I had gotten dehydrated. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those moments. And I I used to, you know, I like watching these survivor shows on TV where people get lost in the wilderness for weeks and somehow they survive. Like, I'm intrigued by that. And they always kind of talk about when dehydration sets in, how your mind begins to play with you. And I'm like, ah, they're just, that's not real until you walk in that moment where your mind starts to play with you. And I, the good news is I recognized it when it happened. And as growing up as a little kid, my dad would take me on camping a lot, and he would take me on backpacking, and he would take me out doing survival campouts. It was fun. I loved it as a kid. And so I'm leaning back on all this training that my dad had given me. And so and the moment, I'm, I'm like, okay, my greatest need right now is water. And so I'm like, I've got to find water. And remember, this is kind of a high desert area. And so I start looking, I I forget trying to make it back to camp. I'm like, Survival 101, I've got to have water or I'm going to dehydrate and really not be any good. And I was already dehydrated a lot. And lo and behold, I'm just going to give credit to God. I come upon a spring that's bubbling out of the ground. There is no creek or river that runs off this spring. It's just a spring that's bubbling up. And I'm like, oh, hallelujah, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. So I, I fill up my bottles and I go to drink the water. It is the coldest water I've ever drank. It's so cold it burned. And so I have to sit there and like try to warm up the water in my bottle so I can drink it, right? <laughs> and so all this is going on. This is crazy. And so I pack my, my, I drink as much as I can and I fill my bottles up and I don't want to overdrink because that's another thing. You don't want to dehydrate yourself and then overdrink too much. And so I'm like, all right, so I fill my, my bottles up as much as I can and I head off again. And it's not very long before I've drank through my water again and I'm dehydrated again and I feel the dehydration coming on. And I'm like, all right, I've gotta have water. And so I I go out and lo and behold, again, the Lord gives me a spring bubbling up out of the ground. It's the wildest thing I've ever experienced. It's awesome. And so again, I I drink what I can and I fill my bottles and I take off again. And this, at this point, it's starting to get dark. And I'm like, all right, well, now it's spending the night out here in this wilderness and that's fine, I can do this. And so, you know, I'm starting to plan for how I'm going to spend the night. And praise God that the guy I went with was way smarter than me, knew a lot better than me, and he was a master elk caller. And all of a sudden, in the background, I hear this elk bugle, and I'm like, that's him. And so, lo and behold, I'm out there, I just have a mouth read, and I let out the most hideous sound that you ever heard on this mouth reed, because I'm like, I am over here. <laughs> And so my buddy comes and he finds me. And I'm just blown away at how that day transpired. You see, I really thought I was good at navigating with my own internal compass. But the thing is, no matter how good you are at something, at some point you will find the end of how good you are. No matter how flawless you may think you are, you're always going to find the end of your ability, the end of whatever that is that you have. You see, I also thought I was good at navigating life, too. And then I come to the point where all my construct of my dreams and my life had come falling like a, like a house of cards, and here in the Gospels, I can almost see the disciples now. And this isn't what the Bible says. This is kind of how I see them. Here is Peter and Andrew. They're sitting on the shoreline, mending their nets. And I'm thinking, well, maybe their day of fishing hasn't been so good. Because I'm a, I love to go fishing. And my dad trained me as a fisherman. And we would fish from sun up to sundown. And it wouldn't matter. The middle of the day, it's hot. There's not many fish biting, but there is one fish that will bite, right? <laughs> so we're going to say we're going to catch that one fish. And so we would fish all day. But here the disciples are sitting there mending their nets. And so it makes me wonder, maybe their day wasn't that good at fishing. Or, or maybe Peter's sitting there thinking, I know my dad was a fisherman. And my dad's dad was a fisherman. And dad before him was a fisherman. But I want to do something else in my life. And then you got James and John. These are some very impetuous young men. Maybe you have two of them in your household. My parents happened to have three. It was really exciting. And I was like the chief of all impetuous young men. If there was something to get into, it was me I was getting into. And so the sons of thunder, here they are. And I can see them sitting out as fishermen thinking, man, I, is this all that my life is going to be? Just a fisherman? Is, I feel like there's more to life than just being a fisherman. And for sure enough, I can see Levi sitting there collecting taxes going, I really didn't think uh, I would grow up and have everybody hate me. I didn't really want to grow up and be the enemy of my people. And why does everybody hate me for just doing my job? You see, those of us who are good at navigating our lives, we quickly set out on a course of action. We start out in bold confidence, moving to the edge of our talent our goodwill, our generosity, our skill. And then suddenly we're faced with this precipice. We come to a cliff or a huge wall or we come to an impasse somehow in our life that we can't get through. And so us and our good nature, we just set out in another course doing the same thing. Only to find the same end and only to see that there is a shape and a limit to who we are and to what we are. We look for enough compassion to truly care about the world, enough love to be kind and faithful husband, enough patience to be a good father, but only to find how pathetically limited we are. We search for enough strength within ourselves, thinking if only we could work harder or longer, but we're still met with the same end, that our self-indulgence cannot be tamed. So we stand at the shore of our lives crying out for someone to save us from ourselves. In Mark 3.13, we see that Jesus sets out to appoint his disciples. And I can only imagine that these men had come to this point in their life where they were willing to lay everything out and take a new direction. Now, I'm pretty sure that the call of Jesus was compelling enough that it would move anybody. But I look upon my own circumstances, my own situation when Jesus called me. He called me when I had come to the end of me. He called me when I was standing at a precipice going, I'm tired of trying to find a new direction. I'm tired of trying to make this thing work. I'm tired of working harder and harder only to see the rug pulled out from underneath me, only to see the world come against me, only to see every effort in vain. But Jesus comes. Now I believe Mark is drawing a distinction between the disciples and the apostles here, It's not fully stated in there, but I believe he wants us to pull the distinction between the two. That there are the apostles, the 12, that were called for a specific purpose. But when Jesus speaks to the disciples, he's not just speaking to those 12 who are called for that that one unique purpose, but he's speaking to all the disciples that are called unto himself, being you and me. And there's two reasons I believe that. One, it's because in in this he says, he kind of makes this distinction. He says, now, Um, that he called those he desired, then he appointed his disciples. And for the second reason I believe that is because later on in the book of Mark we'll see this, that I believe that Mark was actually a disciple of Jesus who followed Jesus. Now, a lot of people don't hold that truth because it's not stated anywhere, but I think there's a key we'll see later on in the book of Mark where we can see that as true. So I think it would be safe to say that the men Jesus called felt they were good at navigating life, or at least they were good at something. And here comes Jesus starting a new nation. In First Peter we see it says, Behold, I call in a new nation a new priesthood. And so Jesus begins to establish his new nation in the same way Israel was started with 12 sons of Jacob. Here comes Jesus choosing 12 men that he would call apostles that he would anoint to start a new nation. This wouldn't be a nation of ethnic blood, but a a nation that's covered by the blood of Jesus, a nation that's united through the work and the sacrifice of Jesus. And so he gives them a new name. And I believe in this, he gives them a new nature, a new meaning for existence that this impetuous thing in us that keeps stepping out in a new direction, trying to find what life is that keeps coming up to a brick wall, uh, Jesus comes in and he gives us a new nature, so that ends. So that in Jesus, we don't find the end, because there is no end in his strength, there is no end in his love, there is no end in his compassion, there is no end in who Jesus is. So to Simon, he gives the nickname, Rock. Rock. And Peter is going to be now no longer Simon, but Peter. He's going to be the rock. And Jesus says, upon this I will build my church. Upon this new nature that is happening in Peter, upon this new man that's being created in Peter, that's going to be what the church is going to be founded on. And so to Levi, he changes his name to Matthew, meaning the gift of God. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he gives the sons of thunder. It's like a wrestling name in it. You see, go, Whoa! like that excites me. I don't know. It's the Sons of Thunder. I'm like, that is a nickname, right? I, I don't know. If you, you're in school sports, you play in school sports a lot, you get nicknames, right? I never had a nickname. I, I was like, I, I need a cool nickname, guys. Like, no, no nickname, just wait. Or Williams. I'm like, really? Man, like he's got a cool nickname. He's got a cool nickname. Like, why don't I get a cool nickname? And you can't nickname yourself, right? That's like a rule, like a written rule. Somebody has to give you your nickname, right? But here's James and John, the sons of thunder. I'm like, that's a cool nickname. And I think that encompasses what they were really like, but not just that, but the nature that God had put in them. And we see it later on because they're fireballs, and they're like, oh, man, these people are opposing Jesus. Can we just call down fire from heaven? Right? Isn't that what they do? And Jesus is like, calm down, calm down. Like, yeah, that, that angst in you, that that fight in you, that thing that's going on in you, man, I'm going to use that, but I'm going to use it as I send you out in my name. And so there was this fire that sits in them and in them, there's this setting apart that Jesus does for his disciples where it's no longer about what you're good at, but it's now about this new creed that God has set in you and in creating a new nation, and so I want us to look at that new creed that Jesus sets in us as he calls us to be his disciples, amen? All right, it's 11 o'clock. That means 15 minutes, right? Can we do this? <laughs> Y'all know better. <clears throat> so in this new creed that is being set out in who the disciples are, I want us to look at this. And first of all, if you're taking notes, you can make this number one, is that we learn from him. And we see in this that Jesus taught his disciples. And as we move on in this next verse, we hit a series of parables. Like Jesus goes from calling his disciples unto himself, and then he starts to hit a series of parables. The first parable is this strongman parable. And the the second one is... is, Who is my mother and father? And then he goes into the parable of the sower. And then it's the the parable, um, he teaches on what the purpose of the parable is. And then it's a lamp being put under a basket. And then it's the seed growing. And it's the parable of the mustard seed. Like there's these series of parables that he brings out. And the fact that as disciples, we are learning from Jesus. You see, Jesus taught his disciples you know, the thing is, is I like to learn. Anybody here like to learn? Like you just like learning new things. And, um, it's been fun. Like lately I've taken on a new challenge. This is kind of new for me. Um, and my wife hopes it, it ends soon. Um, uh, cause I keep acquiring these broken motorcycles at my house. I don't know. <laughs> and so there was, I had five, I think I'm down one to four. Well, three of them are broken. One of them's not, but I got these broken down motorcycles in my house and I'm like, you know, I'm just going to figure out how these things work, and I'm going to put it back together, and I'm going to get them working. It'll be fun, right? I can learn something in the process. And so um, how many of you, if you're trying to learn something new, you go to YouTube, right? Anybody? Yeah, there's, there's a couple. And so I, like, go to YouTube. I watch these videos and what this guy's doing and how he's doing it and, like, how they're cleaning out the carburetors, really good and, and how they're do, building stuff and doing this thing. And, and I'm learning all this stuff. But you know what? In me learning all this stuff, I'm not transformed by the information. You know, I glean the information, but I'm not transformed by it. You know how I know I'm not transformed by it? Because when I woke up this morning, I didn't go work on a motorcycle. (laughs) I didn't quit my job to go build motorcycles. Like this knowledge hasn't transformed me. It's just information I'm picking up and I'm gleaning. But see, the thing is, is as disciples, this isn't just information we pick up. This isn't a YouTube video we watch just so we can do one act. This is a knowledge that transforms who we are from the inside and it makes us a new creature and it gives us a new purpose and it gives us a new meaning in life. Amen? So I asked you this morning, when, when was the last time that you've been, you were transformed by the word of God? Think about that. When was the last time you read through scripture and, and it sh- began to shake you at the core. It began to challenge who you are. It maybe said something you didn't like. It rubbed you a rough way. Or it just was like healing to you. Maybe you wept as you sat there. Or maybe you shouted in rejoice and rejoiced in victory. I, when was the last time you read through the scriptures and you felt the transformative power of life of God come into you? Church, has this just become information or has this become transformation in us? Because as I look at the disciples, I see men who are transformed by the power of God and by the word of God. Jesus would speak these teachings into life. And he wasn't just speaking a teaching. He was speaking, this is the kingdom of God. This is what I'm doing in you. This is my purpose for your life. This is what I have destined for you. This is who you are. This is the new nature you'll be taking on. And so these words are transformative. The second thing is we find out we belong to his family. And he jumps into this, and his mother and his brothers are coming after him. And they're like, man, Jesus has lost his mind. Why would he be doing this? Tanner, you probably had the same thing with some family, right? Like, what are you doing, right? I remember um, when when God called me into the ministry. And I remember um, my mom just wouldn't accept it. Now, she fully does now. But I just remember the night before I went off to Bible college, it just, it was really rough. She got upset with me and I had to look at my mom and go, you know, if you don't get up and go with me in the morning, my car's leaving. I have to do this. It's not an option in life. Like, there's a call and I've heard it. I've got to do this. And it was beautiful. I woke up that morning and my mom said we're gone. We're taking you to school. Then it took a moment because sometimes our family doesn't understand what God's doing is because they haven't felt what God has done inside of us. They don't quite get what, what they, don't, they haven't heard the same voice that we've heard. And I grew up in a church where our pastors were hated constantly and, My parents were like, I don't want that for my son. But yet when we woke up that morning, my mom greeted me with a smile and a hug and said, let's go. You know, sometimes people don't always get what God says to us. They don't understand what God says to us. They don't understand the call that we hear. We're often going to be misunderstood and mistaken. But the thing is, is are we really hearing the voice of God? Have we heard it? Have we heard the voice that calls us into his family, that calls us the sons and the daughters of God? Have we heard that voice that adopts us as heirs and co-heirs with Christ? Have we heard that voice that compels us to come, follow me? You see, he says, who is my family? You want to know who my family is? It's the ones who do my will, who've heard my voice and follow me. The third thing we see is the disciples that we're called unto is we're called to join him in his mission. And he announces this with a parable of the sower. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is. It says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, listen, behold, a sower went out and sowed. And he sowed some seed that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when, he, when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 fold in 100 and he said he who has an ear let him hear. And so the question is do we hear these as a disciple are we hearing what Jesus is saying? Because in this you and I are the sowers. And we're to go forth and we're to sow our seeds. And yes, some seed will fall on the roadside and the birds will come take it away. And we're going to speak life into someone who's not going to get it. We're going to share the gospel with someone and the weeds and the cares of life are going to come up and choke it out. We're going to have people in our own family who we're going to speak the gospel to. And their soul's not going to be deep and it's going to sprout up quickly maybe and fade away. But there's going to be those that we speak the gospel to and it becomes life-giving and it produces a fruit and it multiplies. And I can tell you from years in ministry, I've seen that. I've seen people who get excited for a little bit, maybe a week about who God is, and then a week they're gone. They may share the wonders of how God has, they, they've heard from Jesus now and they've seen him and they're excited, but a week later it's all gone and they're, back to who they were. And then you see some that don't even give you the time of day. They won't even look at you. But then there's those where the gospel goes in and it's good soil. And it comes and it produces and it yields a crop. You see, we're called to join Jesus in his mission of sowing seeds. And the fourth thing we're called to is to become like him in the process. And Jesus wants us to imitate him. He wants us to become like him. Now, a lot of times when we think of this imitating Christ, we might think in terms of, you know, someone who does voice impressions, right? Who imitates somebody else. I remember as a young man growing up, we had this wisteria bush in our yard. Anybody ever had those? They should call that uh, like a Japanese kudzu flower or something. I don't know. It grows so fast, like kudzu, we, we were like always trying to trim this thing. And it, it grew up in a spot, but the grass would still grow up underneath it. And I remember as a young man, we would have to cut the grass underneath it. The only problem was is it attracted a 1,000 bees. And so here you are trying to cut the grass under this vine, which has a 1,000 bees on it, and you're trying not to get stung. And so that was always annoying and frustrating as a young man because I had to cut the grass. And my section of the yard with my brothers was where the wisteria bush was. That's what it stinks me be in the middle sometimes, right? <laughs> And so I remember one day my dad was like, hey, I need you to go trim the wisteria bush. I'm like, I got you. Now, I don't know if you know about me. You don't want me trimming your hedges. In fact, yesterday, the other day I went out and I trimmed them because I trim them once a year. <laughs> my dad was like, hey, we can go out once a month and, and clean it up and keep it nice, right? And I'm like, no, nah, I, I trim the bushes once a year. And I remember I went and I took that wisteria bush down to its stump. I mean, it was just a little stalk coming out of the ground. And my dad looked at me, and he got so mad. He's like, why did you do that? I said, well, because I have to cut the grass around it. <laughs> He's like, man, you have killed that bush. Well, anybody here is good at gardening and you know when something gets established and you prune all the limbs off of it, guess what happens? <laughs> With a force, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if that was the best move because that thing doubled in size, right? But see, the, the thing is, is I, I didn't imitate my father. This isn't the imitation that Jesus is calling to us to. It's not that we go out and we trim the bush like him. But no, there are things that from my father that I have gleaned and they have become me. You ever had that moment where you're like, you say something and you need to like, you hear your father speaking? Anybody ever heard that? you like say like, oh man, that was my dad. Right, or man, I just heard my mom come out of me. What was You have that moment where you just pause. You're like, yeah, because we become imitators of of our parents in a lot of things. We emulate them in in who we are. And it's the old quote that I like to say that we don't preserve traditions by wearing our father's hat, but by having children. You want to know who you are? Look in the eyes of your child, right? (laughs) Because they're a little mirror. You see, Jesus wants us to be like him. And he says in here, he says, to you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. This is what he says. And when he begins to explain this parable, it's verse 11. To you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. To each one of you, to me, guys, we have been given the keys, the secrets to the kingdom. And then he takes us into this parable of a light. And in this parable, we understand that that Jesus has set in us a light. And if He sets in us a light, He's not going to put it under a bush. He's not going to hide it under a a bed. But if He sets you ablaze, He is going to put you out so you fill the room. That's what you do with a candle. You don't hide it somewhere, you put it in the center of the room so its light fills the room. And some of you wonder why you're in tough places because Jesus has lit you. And He wants you to be a light so that we imitate him. Why? Because he is the light of the world. In verse 24, he says this, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And I want to start to kind of bring this, this morning kind of down. Land the plane here on this note, on this section of scripture where Jesus would say this. To you a measure has been given. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Think about that for a moment. Let that settle with you. To you has been given a measure. And based on, not the measure, but what we do with the measure, it's going to be given back to us. To some, more. And to some, whatever there's given is going to be taken away. And I ask you this morning, what is your measure? What is that measure of faith in you? And I'm not talking about just faith in Jesus, that he is who he said he is, but the faith that he has a purpose on your life, he has a calling on your life, he has a call that he's sent out that's just for you. A purpose that he's defined upon your life, a way he has shaped you and formed you for his kingdom. Like, what is your measure? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't have much. Can I say start where you are? I mean, it was the widow, it was the widow who gave a mite in the offering, but it was Jesus who looked and said, she gave more than anyone else. Some of you have kind of heard this story, but several years back, me and my wife sold everything we had and we moved to Oregon to be a part of a church plant. And when when I got out there, I didn't feel like I had much to give. I wasn't preaching the gospel anymore in the sense of a, from a pulpit, I, I wasn't, leading a youth ministry. I wasn't leading songs. There wasn't anything I was really doing. And I began to felt kind of out of sorts and out of place, but I knew that God had brought us there. And in the midst of that, me and Brooke had already been wrestling with God of how we shape mission in the church, like how we do outreach and how the church lives out what we believe. And these things that are impressed upon our heart. And I always found that it seemed the way it was being done was always bulky to me. It never fit. It felt like I was trying to wear Saul's armor or something and it never fit with who I am. And at that moment I I just began to think, well, maybe I can do it different now. And I I didn't have a plan and I didn't have anything in said and we didn't step into anything. And we were just kind of, God, what do you have for us? And there was no voice. There was no distinction. There was no, nothing set in front of us. And, I just remember being in this town and starting to notice that there was a bunch of homeless kids that lived there. Like an odd number. And I noticed that the cops and them were always having interactions. And So I remember sitting down next to a young man named Jeremiah who had run away from home was lost in life. Had no ambitions other than his next meal. Had no hope that everything, anything would ever work out for him in life. And I remember just sitting there listening to his story. And I look at him in full sincerity, is like, hey man, well, can I buy you lunch? He's like, yeah, I'll take lunch. So I remember sitting there, bought him a Subway sandwich and he's eating his sandwich and he tucks away half of it and just kind of talked to him and said, is there anything we, like, we can do? I, I mean, here kind of start a new church and I don't know, is there anything we can do for you? And he's like, you're doing it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like a meal? He's like, no. Nah. He's like, just the fact that you would treat me with dignity means a ton. <laughs> that little phrase would begin to shame me, it would begin to alter the way I began to make my next steps. And so from there, when I met the next homeless teenager, I would just treat them with dignity. And to the next one, I would treat with dignity. And to the next one, I would treat with dignity. And after a while, we began to get an audience with these teenagers. And I'd ask them, hey, man, what do, What do you need? And we found out a young lady who, who was homeless had ran away from her mom who was a prostitute, was pimping her out. and She ran away. She didn't want that lifestyle. And she's living on the streets and she had just got arrested because she stole the dress. And I'm like, well, why'd you steal the dress? She said, because I don't have any clothes. I said, well, if I get you some clothes, will you stop stealing? She said, yeah. And so we began to tell some people and they bring us some clothes and the next thing we know that God begins to add to what's happening here. And I didn't have a plan and I didn't have a purpose and I didn't know what we were doing. I just was... Being there, being available, and God began to do something. All I can say is God began to do something. And then the next thing I know, there's this church in Montana that I heard about what we're doing. And they drove all the way from Montana to Oregon to bring us a, a, a trailer full of clothes. And now I'm like, what do I do with all these clothes? I don't know. And so I'm like, I, they're not going to fill up my house. So I start giving them away. And so the next thing, more people, get on, more people get on board and more people get on board. And so the next thing we're doing is every Sunday we're down serving a meal to, to these kids where they get a hot meal. And it's not just me and my wife. There's several people that have now joined us and they're down there doing this and interacting with these students. And now it starts to make a difference in our community. These kids aren't getting arrested all the time because they have shampoo now, which they used to have to steal. And they have clothes, which they used to have to steal. And they have food, which they used to have to steal. And I was amazed at what God was doing. But it was all because we just began to start in a small, simple way. We took that small little seed and we began to plant it in the heart of a young man. And then we began to plant this seed in another heart and in another heart. Yeah, and there was some times we had to till the ground with those young people. There was sometimes we had to throw the seed again and we had to throw the seed again and we had to throw the seed again. But I remember one day a young man walks up to me and goes, why do you do this? I'm like, why do you do this? And he created an awesome door for me to begin to share the gospel with him. And he was genuinely open and ready for the gospel. And I remember getting a call from this guy a year later. Like, what are you doing right now? He said, Well, I'm at a ministry school in Portland. Like, what? How do you go from being a homeless kid on the streets to in a ministry school in Portland? Because someone would take a seed and plant it in his heart. What are you doing with your measure? I want to ask. There's a famous basketball coach, and Brooke, if you'll come up. Many of you know this guy, John Wooden. No, some of you don't? That's all right. He's probably the most well known basketball coach there is. He's arguably, and would probably without argue, the greatest NCAA coach that's ever played basketball ever coached a team many would argue that his calling was not to coach basketball but rather his coach his calling was to impact people you know he was a basketball coach it was his job but what didn't what happened truly and what he did is he impacted young men and taught them how to become leaders and he would teach them how to be leaders But with all his accomplishments and everything he had achieved in life, guess where he would be found during the week? Every week without fail, fail, he would be found going into the broom closet, grabbing the broom and sweeping his own gym floor. Even though there were men who were paid to do that, even though that was somebody else's job, John Wooden would be out there sweeping the floor. And I know you've heard our pastor tell us this before. Maybe you've come to him and be asking, what am I supposed to do for God? And he would say, grab a broom. Or maybe you've come to him and said, man, our church should be doing this. And he would go, grab a broom. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Pastor John say, grab a broom. Yeah. The, The floor needs sweeping? Yeah, grab a broom. Like, you see this? Yeah, grab a broom. And it may be something simple as sweeping the floor. But church, are we ready to grab our brooms? You see, the thing is that we want to make an impact on people. I know you do. Because it's built into us. We want to leave a mark in this world as we come. And maybe for you, it's, you've, you've tried so long that you've lost that dream of leaving a mark in this world or Maybe you've just kind of given up on the idea because you've come to that precipice so many times over and over only to set out in a new direction and and find that you're weak and limited. But here Jesus is calling his disciples and it's not to become better at what they do or because they're good at something. He calls them because he has a new nature and a new purpose. He's wanting to set them and set them to. And sir, ma'am, today, if not today, before today, God has called you to a purpose. Are we hearing? Ye who have an ear to hear, can you hear? If you want to make an impact from the to the kingdom of God, grab your broom. Begin to serve someone else in a small way. It can be simple. It could be as simple as holding the door open for someone as they come into the church. It could be as simple as saying hello to a neighbor. It could be as simple as taking a meal to someone. It, could, it, could, it can be simple, guys. It can be simple. But, but catch this Jesus said unto them, You've been given a measure, and with that measure, what you do with it will either be multiplied or taken away. And I learned a simple thing in Oregon. It was that when you would take the little seed and he says the parable of the mustard seed, like this is the kingdom of God. Yet though it may be the smallest seed, it grows into a huge bush. The birds come and nest in it. It provides life and nourishment. Even though it may be a small seed. This is the kingdom of God. It's a seed. To so you've been given a seed. Each one of you, you've been given a seed. What are you going to do with your measure? Yeah, it may not be much. Join the boat. I got to sing next to my wife. I mean, come on. How much more intimidating is that? Get to stand up here and sing with Ben this morning. I mean, it was a great time, but how, much, how intimidating is that? I mean, the guy's talent level is 20 times mine. But it's not about that. God called me to this church. I'm excited. I love being here. And so I bring my little seed and every Sunday morning I just put it in the ground because I believe the kingdom of God multiplies that. I'm going to finish out with this parable. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces it by itself. First the blade and then the ear. And then a full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it to the sickle. Because the harvest has come. It's not for us to know how the seed grows. The farmer just simply puts it in the ground. He may water it. He may nurture it. He may till the ground. He may get the ground ready. But he simply puts the seed in the ground and he lets the seed do what it does. He lets nature do what it does. Can we be trustworthy enough of who Jesus is is to simply put the seed in the ground and trust that the kingdom of God will be built upon his word? So this morning as we close, if you will, let's just stand together. We know this song. I want to sing this song as we go. I want you to think, what's your seed this morning? What is that seed? I pray and I ask that you would show us, God, those that many times we don't feel like we know what that seed is and we don't see a clear directive. There's no neon signs that point, but God, would you help us find our room? Would you help us find that simple way we can begin to step in and answer the call? Would you do that in this place, in this body, in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.